Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be wrapping up the recent elections in Queensland and discussing the impact of COVID-19 on these elections. My guest today is Alexis Pink. Alexis comes to us from Brisbane Community Radio Station 4ZZZ and is the first reporter working out of the State Press Gallery for the station in 15 years. Hello, Alexis. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we're recording this podcast on the 10th of April on Good Friday, and we most of the election results have now been decided. Uh, there was... Um, a bunch of the results had been slowed down due to a combination of increased hygiene practices during the count, an increase in pre-poll and postal voting, and some technical problems with the results on election night. Still, we have a pretty good sense of what's happened in the election. Adrian Schrinner, who's the LNP Lord Mayor, has been re-elected to his own term, the fifth successive mayoral term for his party. Looks like there's been a swing of about 4% uh, away from the LNP. So it looks likely that the final council results will be no change in terms of the party numbers. Uh, We're going to have 19 LNP, 5 Labor, 1 Green and 1 Independent. There does appear to be a small chance for the Greens in Paddington. We don't have a preference count there yet. And the ABC's preference estimates have the LNP on about 50.5%. So there's a chance there that that may uh, work out differently and we'll just have to wait and see what happens there. Um, But despite the seat count remaining the same, there was a general swing away from the LNP in most wards with the Greens doing particularly well. The Greens gained a 4.9% swing for the Lord Mayoral primary vote in Brisbane and did did similarly in a bunch of other wards. They had big boosts in their vote in the Gabba ward that they already hold, Paddington and, and a number of other wards. Alexis, how do you interpret this result for the City of Brisbane? Well, there's a couple of things to take away from this. Um, The LNP did an amazing job of holding out the Labor Party in a lot of places. There's probably two reasons for that. They did go with a targeted seat strategy, making sure that they could defend all of those marginals. If you look at the most marginal seat before the election, Du Bois, you can actually see that in in action. That was notionally Labor before the election, and now it's got a 10-point margin favouring the LNP incumbent. Um, the Liberals spent a lot of time in these marginal seats and they spent a lot of their advertising and resources budgets on it as well. The other thing that you'd have to note, of course, is the effect of COVID-19 on the overall election. It did seem that regardless of what party that you were actually in, incumbents did way better than you would otherwise expect. Some of them picked up swings that you wouldn't even imagine. Um, For example, um, Wynnum Manley, which is Peter Cummings' seat, he had a swing just slightly against him, but realistically, everybody else suffered about the same. It's amazing how well um, the Labor Party has held up its primary votes in its most safe seats, but when it came to its marginal seats, it just didn't do very well at all, bleeding a lot of votes out into the Greens. The story for the Greens, however, was completely different. They actually did quite well everywhere. picking up votes in the Lord Mayor and some council seats all over the place, but none of it actually translating into an actual win, only coming really, really close in Paddington. I mean, it's worth saying this is a single-member ward system, so it's always hard for a minor party to win seats, and it's not surprising you would see a big boost in the vote and not really see a lot of breakthroughs. But, I mean, the fact that they're that close in Paddington does suggest that that's going to be a uh, close contest and they'll have a good shot at winning that in 2024. So the LNP has now been in power for 16 years for the mayoralty and 12 years for the council. We did see, like, there did appear to be a bit of a, a wavering of support for the LNP 
uh, but it, you know, it, they managed to hold on to all their wards. But you know, the margin for the mayor is a lot smaller than it was before. How much of that do you think is a reflection of how long they've been in power and a general reflection on the LNP, or the possibility that they're just a little bit weakened by the new mayor who doesn't have as strong a profile as his predecessor? It's actually really hard to tell, but comparing um, Adrian Schrinner, the current mayor, to even Graham Quirk or um, Campbell Newman before him, it's, it's just light years difference. Um, uh, Campbell Newman had a really bombastic style. He was very present and was very um, brash and forward. Um, it really captivated people for quite a long time. Um, when Graham Quirk came along, the expectation was that he may end up losing because he was just shy, quiet, and reserved. But um, the big advantage for people like Quirk was he was just a hard worker, head down, bum up, and he just seemed to get on with it, which also apparently appeals quite well to the Brisbane electorate. For Schrinner, it's been a little bit harder. Um, he does come off a little bit impersonal and a little bit um, difficult to deal with, but the LNP has focused a lot of its efforts on its competency in government, and that's the sales pitch it took to, um, to this particular election. And regardless of a few minor scandals, it just doesn't seem like the locals are very convinced that the LNP has outlived its useful purpose, which was the vast majority of Labor's approach to the LNP in power. I'll give Pat Condren a little bit of credit. Um, he did do a very good job at presenting a fairly likeable character to which you could switch, but what ended up happening is people just didn't take Pat as seriously as they could have. His first few weeks in the campaign were disastrous and just never seemed to fade away. Just that impression that while he's a good bloke, he may not be as competent as the LNP administration. It was difficult to come over and in the end, it just didn't work. Do you think it's possible that the fact that they've been able to hold on to all those awards while having a diminished margin for mayor suggested maybe it is a little bit easier for Labor to win the mayoralty than win the council, that the council requires a number of strong candidates and a number of wards um, overturning incumbents, whereas for the mayoralty, like we could well see a situation where the next change in power happens similarly to the um, the last change of power where the, the opposition wins the mayoralty first and then comes back and wins the council later. I think that's probably true, and it certainly stands up in the way that this particular contest is reported in the media. It's not councillor versus councillor, it's mayor versus mayor. Um, whenever you hear um, anything talked about these councils, you hear mostly from Pat Condren and Adrian Trinham and the um, remaining Lord Mayoral candidates. You don't hear a lot from the local candidates themselves. I mean, we did a little bit here at 4ZZZ, but even then, it was actually really hard to do the sort of research that you would like to do on these candidates. Um, unless they'd been in for years, it's actually hard. You're hard pressed to find information that is independent of the candidate's own reflections. It's the nature of the contest to a certain degree. I have a feeling that if it ever did flip back to Labor, which it may well do on a margin of just 5%, um, you, it would be another cycle again before you see a lot of the council wards di um, disappear. The only thing that really stood out is incumbency, and incumbency was massively advantageous just about everywhere, even if you're only there 
for the last year, you had a significant advantage over your opposition. And just as a reminder, almost a third of the um, LNP caucus on the council resigned from their seats and was replaced by someone else um, before the election, um, which is something that's permitted if someone resigns, I believe, in the last year of the term. There's no by-election. The party just appoints a replacement. So there was a bunch of LNP councillors who had the job but hadn't had the job for very long and hadn't been previously elected. That is absolutely correct. And it just worked out really well for the LNP. They picked good but not remarkable candidates for a lot of these places. And yeah, they just had a year to sit in the community and do the things that a councillor does. And you just get that sort of recognition in the community that makes, you know, an election a lot easier. I mean, look at Inogra. Andrew Wines is absolutely new to council. And despite having a few articles not go his way very early in his career, he easily survived the um, swing against um, the AAP against a reasonably high-profile candidate in John D. Bush. That's probably about it where we wrap Brisbane. Uh, we're going to be watching again in four years. The Labor Party is closer to winning the mayoralty and uh, overall the two-party preferred position is, is a bit stronger for them. The Greens have a much stronger position and you would expect the Greens to be in a stronger position to challenge for more wards in 2024. We're going we're gonna to keep an eye out for these Paddington figures as they come in, but that's probably about where we're going to leave Brisbane for now. Uh, we wanted to briefly also touch on the state by-elections. So there are also two state by-elections on the same day as the council elections in the Labor seat of Bundamba in the Ipswich area and the LNP seat of Currumbin on the Gold Coast. Um, both seats were retained by the incumbent parties, but the LNP had their margin in Currumbin halved, down to 1.5%. The Labor margin in Bundamba was significantly reduced, with One Nation coming second. Alexis, do you think these by-elections tell us anything about uh, what we can expect at the next state election? Yeah, I think it might tell us that the road to government may be harder for the LNP than they would have us believe. They've been quite confident in the last year of... Um, of governments. They've been quite strongly running against um, Jackie Trad, especially on her issues around the Triple C and the house purchase. And those things stuck to a certain degree, but just don't seem to be resonating in any of these elections. I mean, the Labour Party probably wouldn't have lost any ground if it weren't for the fact that One Nation ran. It's quite remarkable. And Losing 1.8% of your two-party preferred margin in a by-election against the government is actually really embarrassing for the LNP. We were expecting that they would probably do a little bit better. In, in fact, it came very, very close to being a loss. So there could be quite a bit of pressure on Deb Frecklington over the next few months. I mean, it's not too bad at the moment because COVID is effectively swamping the media, but... If there is a challenge, it may be soon. Um, these are not great results, and that might be enough to rumble the LNP into maybe doing something different. Now, the other seat, we saw One Nation do quite well. They came second. Uh, they did significantly reduce the labour margin. This is an area that is a very good area for One Nation, right, even though they haven't run in the past. Do you think this tells us anything about One Nation's prospects in in the state election? Bundamba is a sort of outer Ipswich seat. It's effectively the approaches from Brisbane. And yeah, this is an area where Pauline Hansen effectively hails from and is quite well-liked and well-respected. 
That said, it's not a great result. Like, it's much less than the results of the um, mid-90s and early 2000s where One Nation swept um, governments um, out to sea with their um, their populist agenda. Um, it's maybe not as good as One Nation would have liked. Um, they, they came close to winning it theoretically, but where does the next 5 or 10% actually come from for One Nation? Um, it's hard to believe that they could actually have much of an impact in Ipswich, let alone anywhere else. It's going to be very difficult for them, especially in a year where incumbency seems to be doing a lot for people. Uncertain times tends to bring people back to what they know rather than trying something new, especially if the approaches that are being taken just seem logical and sensible, which is where the Palaszczuk government is at the moment. So this is probably a good opportunity for us to move on to talking about the only news story that anyone's talking about at the moment, which is the COVID-19 pandemic. The campaign was completely overshadowed by the pandemic story and most campaign activity was suspended due to safety concerns. We saw a massive surge in pre-poll and postal voting and telephone voting went from being an obscure method of voting to one used probably by more than 1% of all voters. I don't have the exact figures in front of me, but there was a big drop in the number of people voting on election day and a big increase in people voting pre-poll and postal. And we've seen that in the turnout. So it does look like the turnout has dropped. At the moment, it's at about 75% in the city of Brisbane, which is down from about 84% in 2016. Um, But it's down a lot less than you would have expected if it wasn't for the um, very extensive use of pre-poll and postal voting that gave people other options than just voting on election day. Alexis, what do you think we learnt about how this pandemic will impact on democracy from these elections? Well, I think the first takeaway you're going to um, have from this election is that regardless of the health advice that was given to them about the safety of polling, no one was actually genuinely convinced that that was a good idea, that they feel that elections are superfluous in a crisis. They're more than happy to leave things lie until things get better again, which is an interesting reflection on democracy in general um, and maybe even specifically Australian democracy where we've seen more shutdowns of parliament than we have anywhere else in the world. Very sort of unusual thing um, to see because you don't see either the US Congress or the um, UK Parliament shutting down, but the Queensland Parliament is on an almost permanent hiatus. They may be coming back in a few weeks to pass some legislation very specifically, but they've already cancelled certain sittings. Two thoughts I have about that is, one is this was a relatively low-stakes election, right? Like it's um, it's a council election uh, people clearly are less interested in a council election than a state or a federal election. I'm not sure how people would respond if we were due to have a federal election. And I think part of the issue, you know, we've seen a couple of other elections delayed. Um, the Tasmanian Upper House election that was supposed to happen at the beginning of May first got postponed to the end of May with plans for five weeks of pre-poll voting and now has just been postponed to an um unspecified date in the future and the September council elections in New South Wales have been postponed by a year so I think I think there's a bit of that that some of these elections are a little bit lower stakes and seems less important and less high profile and maybe people would look look on differently if there was a more major election but I think I mean I think the other thing about Queensland is it was made more difficult 
to decide what to do by the fact that the process had already started. And I suspect if the pandemic had hit a month earlier or if that if the election was due to be held on the 28th of April and not the 28th of March, we probably would have just seen the whole thing suspended and pushed to the end of the year. There weren't a lot of legislative mechanisms in place when the pandemic started to hit. And as it went on, they did get to the point where they added things to the legislation to be able to stop it. But even at the most serious, it didn't look like they ever were going to genuinely stop an election, even suspend it for a certain amount of time or extend any of the postal voting and pre-polling options. Um, Yeah, low stakes is how you would describe a lot of council elections. That said, people still voted in numbers unprecedented, especially at pre-polling stations where almost half of the voting population, about 1.2 million people, pre-polled for this election. Barely anyone came through on the actual polling day. Indeed, if you include the postal votes, it was a majority of enrolled voters had already voted before election day. So yeah, it's it's a big deal. Um, it didn't stop anyone from wanting to vote, but it obviously played on people's minds. The difference between having to do your democratic duty and the risk of being exposed to something that could potentially see you very sick or maybe even die. It's interesting to compare this election to some that are happening overseas. Uh, the French council elections happened shortly before the Queensland council election and, and had a big drop in turnout. And that was for the first round. Um, I haven't seen yet if they actually went through with the second round of voting. I suspect they haven't. So like, it's interesting to look at the ways in which Australian democracy works a little differently to other countries in terms of how people vote. We all know about compulsory voting, but beyond that, we make it really easy for people to vote wherever they please. You can vote anywhere in your local council or in a state or federal election. You can vote anywhere in your state. Um, on election day, in a lot of other countries, you are often assigned a polling place and you must attend that single polling place. We also make it uh, very easy to request a postal vote. And effectively, at this point, anyone can vote early without needing an excuse, whether or not that's that's the law in de facto, that's the de facto system that we now have. And because of that, it's actually, people have a lot of flexibility about how they vote. That's even before you get into, you know, internet voting or telephone voting, which is still a relatively small part of voting. And I do wonder if that that will make it easier if, if we are still in a state of lockdown when the Queensland election comes or when the Western Australian election comes early next year, um, that, you know, we'll be able to utilise more postal and pre-poll voting um to give people more options yeah i suspect that will be the case and certainly with the rushed provisions for ensuring social distancing and um, hygiene are maintained at polling places there was quite a lot of genuine anger towards the commission and towards the government about what they were doing to ensure that people didn't get sick while they were voting um I noticed that the LNP have been calling fairly strongly to set the whole um, state election to postal voting. That seems to be not only a measure about um, COVID-19 as so much a measure in their own best interests. They're probably betting that a lot of younger voters may completely skip or not get their um, work done in time for an election. And there are, you know, genuine concerns that exist around postal voting and its general security, which 
to be honest, should be addressed before anyone decides to go full postal voting. That said, I'm expecting that they are going to put in some pretty radical steps towards making sure that everyone is safe while at the they're polling at the state election. It's interesting actually to look at the number of new cases that have been recorded in Queensland over the last few weeks. The number was climbing in the kind of week or so before the council election. And then probably for about a week afterwards, the numbers were relatively stable. But in the last five days, there have been very few new cases of COVID-19 in Queensland. So I think if there was a bit of a, a spike due to the council election. We would have seen it by now and we haven't, which does suggest that the methods used were effective. And it does also suggest that this kind of, assuming you're not in the peak of the pandemic, right? If you're in a kind of New York or Italy style um, pandemic crisis situation, I think it would be crazy to have an election of any kind. Um, but it does suggest that if we remain in this kind of state of semi-lockdown, we have a few cases, but we kind of have it under control. Um, I don't see why we can't have an election with, you know, strictly enforced uh, spacing, distancing, encouraging people to vote, maybe extending pre-poll over a longer period, a bunch of options. Um, As far as universal postal voting, uh, because that's also a thing being debated in the US right now, I'm not really sure who would benefit because if anything, you would think LNP voters would be more likely to get their shit together and make the application to vote postally as they as they are now currently required to do. You know, there's nothing in the legislation that stops every single voter in the state from requesting a postal vote, right? It's just the question is, do you um, opt everyone into postal voting and send everyone a ballot without them requesting it? Or do you just ask people to still do their normal practice of requesting one? Because um, you would think... With no law changes, you you would expect a surge bigger than the council elections of people requesting a postal ballot um, for the state election. You know, when the deadline for the postal voting closed, the full impact of the pandemic hadn't yet hit in Queensland. Um, so I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure that actually would help help the LNP because you would think their voters would be more likely to do what they need to do under the current administrative law to get their vote. And you would think younger voters may be the ones who find themselves stuck and having to vote on the day or consider just not voting at all. That's true. Um, And there are other considerations in there as well. Like the LNP do significant amounts of um, advertising to people who pre-poll. Um, sending out forms and letters specifically to people that they know um, vote um, LNP and who are older to um, to make sure that they get their votes in on time. And that actually plays out in the postal um, ballot results. You'll see quite a lot of LNP postal ballots come in first. And as things come along, you'll see that number look more and more like um the figures that are associated with the electorate in general. It was very prominent in this election because quite a few people did end up getting their postal ballot applications in very late in the process. The other issue is around the ECQ's capacity to be able to provide a total postal ballot. The ECQ sent out around 570,000 postal ballots. That's about one-sixth of all voting um the total voting population, and they were very stretched to send those out. They ended up doing them in two rounds, in fact. It's hard to imagine how that might expand out to 3 million in such a small amount of time. Six months run up, they might have a bit of a chance, but 
this is a complicated thing to manage. And there is also the weaknesses of Australia Post in this time as well. They're probably not expecting 3 million extra envelopes in this time as well. It significantly put pressure on their services. I feel like that actually makes the case for universal postal voting because you know, under the current law, there's nothing stopping one and a half or two million people asking for a postal vote. And then the ECQ being stuck having to do that at the last minute. And if anything, maybe it makes more sense to plan for sending everyone a postal vote. Maybe people don't have to use the postal vote. They can still turn up and vote in person if they wish, but giving an option. But, you know, there are imperfections with postal voting as we discussed when the marriage plebiscite happened in 2017. and uh, some of those issues were related to the method of getting the ABS to run the election, but a lot of those were just inherent in sending every single person a postal vote. Well, there's not really any good options, but I, I think at the very least they'll they'll be wanting to expand the time periods for voting and for sending out postal votes. Probably that means nominations happens earlier, gives people more time to cast their vote and probably expects a bit of a drop in turnout. Yeah, I think you might be right there. I'm looking for the flexibility to be able to just do these things as required. I mean, there's no good answer per se. Like, even if we decide to keep elections as they are, people are still going to be worried about turning up to polling booths, even if we are out of the main part of the crisis by that stage. It's going to be a difficult election, whether we like it or not. So, yeah, maybe a radical approach to... um, to postal voting is a good idea, but we won't know until the um, until effectively the government or the ECQ makes that call. I tell you what, uh, from my perspective as an election analyst, one thing that will really mess us up is if very few people are voting on election day, um, polling booth swings will become completely useless. Like we won't be able to use them to predict the result of the election. We'll just have to wait for all the votes to be counted. It's going to take a lot longer to know the result of the election. And the next election cycle, we won't have those kind of polling booth maps be anywhere near as useful in telling us anything about the communities that um, we're analysing. So that's going to be frustrating. But, you know, in the end, that's not the that's not really what's most important. In the end, what's most important is people being able to cast their vote and being safe in doing so. Yeah, admittedly, knowing a little bit earlier than everybody else what the result of an election will be is sort of a, a privilege that we've been given over the years based on you know historical data. I don't mind waiting for my democracy if I have to. So, um, yeah, it'll upset um, people who do this sort of analytics. I do this sort of analytics, and obviously Anthony Green does, but... Yeah, and it might make election night coverage a little bit more interesting. Yeah, I'll have to find something else to do with my time. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Alexis, for joining me. Not a problem. Thank you. You can catch Alexis on her weekly state and local politics show, The Pineapple Rebellion, on Fridays at 9am on Triple Z in Brisbane. And thanks to Triple Z for the use of their facilities for Alexis as part of the recording. Um, so this is going to be my last podcast for a while. Uh, we don't have any elections scheduled until August now. Who knows what the timing of those elections will be. Uh, I'm probably going to have a couple more blog posts about the Queensland election and then largely I'm going to put the website into hiatus for a bit. There'll be a lot of work going on in the background for the Queensland election and those other elections that are coming up, but with no news at the moment in the current position, probably the website's going to go quiet. I hope everyone uh, stays safe and um, finds other things that you can read during that break and I'm looking forward to coming back when we have elections resume, hopefully later in the year, 
in whatever form they might come. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. Information about this podcast is available at www.tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Krista Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening. <laughs>